Increment 22, we see Jesus, Hebrews 2020. Father, we pray today that the word of God, your word, will travel forth with power and that it will accomplish its purpose of astonishing grace in the hearers. We have confidence that it will, for your word never comes back to you without having accomplished that rich and powerful purpose. Our continuing study of Hebrews will contain a special word to you, the listeners today, regarding the present time of crisis. Both man and God have issued a command to enter our homes and to basically stay in place. Man has urged it from the wisdom of science, and God has commanded it in his wisdom, which is from above. Whether the mandates from man recommended a wise course of action will be determined by history. Whether God commanded our temporary enclosure in his wisdom will be revealed both in history and in eternity. In other words, God has a purpose high above and beyond the purpose of men. The last part of the initial exordium, that introductory sentence of Hebrews, proclaims the superiority of the sun over angels. This isn't just something that we take as a biblical fact. This has to become the reality of our lives. We are called to a vertical orientation. Sometimes scientists are right and sometimes they're wrong. There has been the scientific proclamation that creation came about by some horizontal causation, when in fact the Bible teaches that it came forth from a vertical causality. The last part of the initial exordium of Hebrews, I'll say it again, proclaims the superiority of the Son of God over angels. Angelology, the study of angels, of which science is almost totally, if not completely, ignorant. Angelology travels along with what we call Christology, or the study of the word about Christ, all the way through Hebrews 2.16. So from 1.4 to 2.16, we're dealing with the son's superiority over all the angels and a name that he inherited above all their names. Hebrews 2.17 to 18 introduces this Christological theme of the high priesthood of Jesus Christ. We aren't explained, much, not much is explained there, but he is called a faithful and merciful high priest. The superiority of the Son over angels is thematically important in Hebrews as is the son's superiority over Moses, which comes into play, especially in Hebrews chapter 3. 
One major reason for this, and this reaches deep into Hebrews and kind of gathers and embraces more of the whole purpose of Hebrews. One major reason for this is that the PT wants to show the superiority of the new covenant over the law that was ordered through angels. Listen carefully. The law that came from Mount Sinai that is called the first covenant in this comparison contrast in Hebrews came through angels. It was ordered or commanded by angels by means of a mediator. The angels over whom Jesus is superior Moses, over whom Jesus is superior. Galatians 3.19, Paul uses that language. The law, he says, was ordered through angels by means of a mediator. And please notice that Paul calls what Hebrews calls this first covenant in comparison with the new covenant. He calls this the law, ha-namas. He added, and this is very important, that it was commanded by angels, or we could say through angels, and by means of a mediator. The mediator was Moses. The mediator of the covenant ordered at Mount Sinai through angels was Moses. Gospel of John agrees. The fourth gospel agrees. The law came through Moses in John 1.17. The mediator of the covenant made at Mount Sinai was Moses. That which Paul calls the law ordered by angels. The PT or the author of Hebrews calls the word Lagos, spoken by or through, dia, through angels. The word spoken through angels in Hebrews 2.2. 2. So there's agreement between Paul the Apostle and this PT, this pastor theologian, that the covenant made at Mount Sinai was a word spoken through angels and the law mediated by Moses. Perhaps more germane to Hebrews, however, and I find this to be extremely important, is Stephen's speech. Stephen, whose name Stephanos means crown or corona. Stephen's speech, as recorded in Acts chapter 7, and all the way from chapter 7, verse 2, all the way through 53. And, of course, there are some remarkable dramatic events around that speech. You've heard of the King's speech and the excellent movie about that. Well, this is Stephen's speech. Stephen was one of the magnificent seven, I call them. Seven deacons that were appointed by the apostles, and they were of the Hellenistic or the Greek-speaking Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. Again, they were appointed by the apostles to see to, to the distribution of goods to 
the Hellenistic widows or the Greek-speaking widows of the church who were complaining that they were forgotten in that distribution. That's Acts chapter 6, verses 1 to 2. Stephen was also a phenomenal preacher. Just because you're a deacon doesn't mean you can't be a preacher. And he gained some fame in the area. He spoke with, as the scripture says, wisdom and the Holy Spirit. He spoke with what Paul called the conviction and the persuasiveness of the Holy Spirit. 1 Thessalonians 1.5 compared to Acts 6.10. Stephen was brought before the council, which we know as the Sanhedrin, presided over by the high priest. He was brought before them because of the accusation that he was, quote, speaking blasphemous words against this holy place, speaking of the temple and the city of Jerusalem and the law, speaking blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. That's why Stephen was brought forth before the council, Acts 6.13. Now, when Stephen gave his defense, and he was permitted to give a defense or an apologia, he gave it in the form of what we would know as a homily. And the homily is very reminiscent of the form that Hebrews, the epistle, takes. And so giving his defense before the, interestingly, high priest and the Sanhedrin, the council, Stephen actually gave a homily. It was a sermon. It was the sermon of his life and a sermon spoken the last minutes of his life. In it, he spoke of Moses. And listen very carefully to today's message, if you will, depending on the spirit for your attentiveness. He spoke of Moses as, quote, the one who was in the congregation in the desert. Speaking of Moses leading the people through the wilderness after the Exodus. And then Stephen said that he was accompanied by the angel that had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. Accompanied by an angel who had spoken to him on Mount Sinai. And Stephen goes on to say, that Moses received living oracles, logia, L-O-G-I-A, logia, zonta, living oracles, to give to us, speaking of Israel. Acts 7.38, please note it. Moreover, as his homily reached a searingly convicting peak, he said to the council, Listen carefully. You received the law, namas, by the direction of angels and did not observe it. Acts 7.53. Now, before that final word, Stephen had also said to them, you constantly oppose the Holy Spirit. What a charge. This sounds a little like a warning in Hebrews. 
a warning against insulting the spirit of grace. Hebrews 10.29. Now, resisting the Holy Spirit. I have to hold on that for a moment. Because in the United States of America and across this world, perhaps. And recently, Jeremy Key, our our master of our website, who's done such a marvelous job, gave me a list of hits that we've received on the website. And you might be interested to know that on that was 50 countries, 50 countries, as well as 98,000 hits in just America alone. But the point being that there is a resistance of the Holy Spirit, not only in our nation, but in nations across the world, because they are resisting a message in which God is announcing the universally saving significance of his son in whom he has spoken a final word. Resisting the Holy Spirit or insulting the spirit of grace is part of an act of apostasy that includes spurning the son of God and accounting his blood of the new covenant as profane. And that includes it's profane or it's common because it only serves to save or justify a few. The point that I'm making today is that the case that the PT is making in Hebrews for the superiority of the son over angels, the son of God over angels and over Moses is pertinent to the argument for the superiority of the new and everlasting covenant ratified by the blood of Jesus, the Son of God, over the old covenant at Sinai, which was spoken by angels and mediated through Moses. Moses, who was a prophet of God and perhaps the greatest of the prophets of old in whom God spoke. But Moses himself prophesied of a greater prophet, a Messiah prophet, if you will, in Deuteronomy 18.15, saying this, The Lord our God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. It's a little more than interesting that Stephen quoted this in the same homily that got him killed. At the closing of which, at the close of his his sermon, he saw Jesus, the Son of Man. I said he saw Jesus, the Son of Man, the high priest for the age, standing at the right hand of God. By the way that the Greek constructed Acts 7.56, Jesus was seen by Stephen. Stephen saw Jesus, who had been seated, but who was now standing. A king sits upon a throne. A priest stands to minister. Jesus, after he had made one sacrifice forever for all people, for all the ages, sat down. But he also stands from That position he stands. He was seen standing in Revelation 5, 5, and 6. Because he's standing 
to minister with a new kind of priesthood by which he intercedes for us to save us to the uttermost. Stephen, who had to give his defense before the high priest, was giving his defense before the great high priest. As the king, Jesus sits on the throne of God. As priest, he stands in the presence of God. Stephen, who is making his case before the high priest in Jerusalem and the Sanhedrin, was in fact proclaiming his Lord and his king before the great high priest. In his dying moments, Stephen saw Jesus, the son of man of Psalm 8 fame, under whose feet God places everything the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Stephen's speech in Acts 7 has great significance to Hebrews, at least in my my view. Now, I do not say that Stephen wrote Hebrews. Don't misunderstand me. Stephen didn't write Hebrews. He couldn't have. Since he was murdered, And his spirit was received by the Lord Jesus in the 30s before Saul of Tarsus was converted, before Paul was converted on the road to Damascus. So that was the early to mid 30s. Hebrews was most likely written in the 60s of the first century. Stephen did not write Hebrews. But I think if you compare Acts chapters 6 and 7, With the homily of Hebrews, it's fair to say that Stephen was a fairly strong influencer of the PT. And that the homily of Stephen in Acts 7, and this is well worth studying for anyone who's listening. In many features, it was akin to the homily that we call Hebrews. So what is being dealt with in Hebrews is first the superiority of the word spoken by God in a son over the word that God spoke in the prophets of old, the greatest of whom was Moses. Second, what is being dealt with in Hebrews is that the word spoken in the son is superior to the word spoken by angels. And this develops in the homily into a show of the superiority of the first or the superiority over the first or Sinaitic covenant at Sinai, Sinaitic, and is superiority over it of the new and age-abiding covenant that had been inaugurated by the Son's purification of sins, after which he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. So the Sinai covenant, S-I-N-A-I, was ratified by the blood of bulls and goats. The new and everlasting covenant was authorized and ratified by the blood of Jesus Christ, which is the blood of an everlasting covenant. Hebrews 13, 20. 
Now, you'll remember in invoking the Eucharist, Jesus said, this is my blood of the covenant. This is my blood of the covenant shed on behalf of many. Many equals all, as we have seen by a comparison of Matthew 20, 28, with 1 Timothy 2, 6, and Romans 5, 18 and 5, 19, interchangeably any and all are the same for all. One of the significant points of the blood of Jesus is that it was shed for all. To ignore this fact or to neglect this so great salvation is a pretty serious violation. Now, I'm speaking as the PT speaks in Hebrews. Now, this develops, as I said, into a show of the superiority of the Son's covenant, the new covenant, over the Sinaitic covenant. And that becomes a reality and is brought to the fore in Hebrews 8.1. He reiterates the main point or the headline and says, We have such a high priest which is sat down at the right hand of the majesty in the heavens. And then he goes right into a discussion of the new covenant, even quoting Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 in that chapter. I'm not going to deal with that in total today. But the new and everlasting covenant becomes a a main and prominent feature of Hebrews. In Hebrews 8.1, once again, the main headline, as he calls it, is we have such a great high priest or a high priest who sat down at the right side of the throne of the majesty in the heavens. And again, he goes right into an explicit treatment of two covenants, followed by a comparison and contrast of two kinds of sacrifice of the two covenants. The last exhortation, in fact, of Hebrews and the last warning has to do with the contrast of two covenants by contrasting two mountains, Mount Sinai and Mount Zion in Hebrews chapter 12. You haven't come to Mount Sinai, but to Mount Zion. On Mount Zion, there is a fellowship of human and divine persons, human and angelic beings, and Jesus and the Father and the Spirit. A divine communion, a communion of human, angelic and divine persons. This is something that's altogether missed in our furious desire to have horizontal attachments by all kinds of forms of social media and personal communication today. We've been swamped and almost drowned in horizontal attachments, some of which are psychologically damaging and damning in a way where people cancel each other out and claim to be friends and then defriend instead of befriend. And this, we have been drowning in a sea of horizontal attachments. There is one thing to love members of your family. It's another thing to be attached to them in a psychologically damaging way 
that is, has nothing to do with your love for them, but your own self-love. And so I say, God has another kind of purpose in sequestering us in our homes than man has. Now, this contrast of two covenants goes along with the contrast of two ages, the present transient evanescent passing age that's now passing away and the everlasting aeon or age. And so this everlasting age of Messiah contrasted with the transient age that's passing away has a parallel in the transient passing covenant of Sinai which was demonstrated by the glory of Moses fading on his face, fading and fading. And the everlasting covenant, which is demonstrated by the light of the knowledge of the glory of God that shines bright and forever in the face of our Lord Jesus Christ. The high priest after the order of Melchizedek. The transient covenant had priests whose tenure was limited because they die. The high priest after the order of Melchizedek was not limited by death and is not now limited by it or by corruption because through resurrection he now operates as a priest throughout the age interceding for us in the power of an incorruptible life because he who died once and for all can die no more, having been risen from the dead. In Hebrews 8.1, then, the main headline, we have such a great high priest who sat down at the right side of the throne of the majesties in the heavens, goes right into an explicit treatment of those two covenants. I can't emphasize that enough. Followed by, the comparison and contrast of two kinds of sacrifice, two covenants. It's probably a good thing to keep all of this in mind so that we can be aware that the writer's going somewhere with this argument of the superiority of the son over the angels and then over Moses. He's going somewhere from the outset. As we did with the book of Revelation, where we tried to have a sense of the book in toto, tried to maintain a sense of the book in its totality or altogether as we examined its parts and even some of its minute details. So we will try to maintain a sense of the whole of Hebrews, of Hebrews in toto, even as we do a more minute exegesis and deal with its details. The book of Hebrews, if you want to call it that, some people do, the book of Hebrews hangs together as a homily designed to be a powerful word of encouragement for Christians in the agona, an arena of contention and adversity, which is the collision of two eons or ages. Now, speaking of the covenants, a severe warning is issued by the PT in Hebrews 10, 28 to 31. This is one that Christians have a hard time dealing with. Hebrews 10, 28 to 31. And sometimes people use it and abuse it as Christians losing their eternal salvation or losing their status with God or God undoing the salvation 
that he wrought in Christ for them, which is absurd. I was going to say obscene. Well, I will. Speaking of the covenants then, but this severe warning is uttered with regard to the new covenant, which was ratified by the blood of Jesus. Hebrews 10, 28 through 31, my translation. Anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy based on the testimony of two or three witnesses, meaning human witnesses. How much more, how much worse punishment do you suppose one will be considered worthy who has treated with disdain, literally trampled underfoot, the Son of God? This is the same Son of God who passed through the heavens in 414. And who regards the blood of the new covenant to be unclean. That person who tramples underfoot the son of God. And who regards the blood of Jesus Christ. The blood of a new covenant to be unclean. And who insults the spirit of grace. How much more worthy of punishment is what he's saying. Do you suppose that kind of person is? For we know very well, says verse 30, the one who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay, Deuteronomy 32, 35. And again, he uses this device often through Hebrews, palin, P-A-L-I-N. And again, because he makes a point by two or three scriptural witnesses. And again, it says, and again, it says, and again, the Lord will judge his people. Deuteronomy 32, 36 is quoted. And then 31, it says, it is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now, as the writer did in Hebrews 6, 9, and 10, after that other famous moment in which he takes a wire brush to his hearers, as it were, Hebrews 6, 4 through 8, as the writer did in Hebrews 6, 9, 6, 9 actually is the key to the interpretation of 6, 4 through 8, Part of the key, anyways. As the writer did in Hebrews 6, 9, after taking a wire brush to his readers in Hebrews 6, 4 to 8, so he does here. In Hebrews 6, 9, the writer wrote, but we are persuaded of better things about you, beloved, and things about salvation itself. Even though we're speaking... In this manner, we're not talking about you losing your justification status before God. We understand what salvation is. And we're not talking about the so-called loss of your salvation. Although I've mentioned before, we can lose the experience of being preserved and delivered if we reject the word in time. But as the writer kind of let up on the gas a little bit in Hebrews 6, 9, he also does after that searing warning in 1028 to 31 by saying this in 1032. My translation all the way through verse 34 reads like this. But remember the early days when after you had received insight, you endured a great struggle with sufferings. Sometimes by being exposed to public disgrace and afflictions, and other times by being companions of those who were so treated. Back then, he says, you sympathized with those who were in prison. That means for their witness of Christ. 
and accepted with joy the confiscation of your property even, knowing that you yourselves have a better and enduring possession. This is characteristic of a pastor teacher, a shepherd who teaches, a shepherd who leads by teaching the word. Characteristic of a PT, the writer gauges the spiritual health and the spiritual state of his hearers by their demonstration of compassion and brotherly love. We can claim that we have great insight and great light, but that claim is only authenticated by love and by great love. It is easily noticeable in this pastoral warning passage that the covenant is featured, the new covenant is featured, while a severe warning is issued about the accountability under it, our accountability under it. That is, our accountability not to discount it or set it aside or neglect it or leave it as not a real part of our higher priorities in life. But to do so would be to incur a judgment, not based on two or three witnesses on earth, but three witnesses in the heaven. Again, we're faced here with just what kind of consequences threaten those who set aside as profane the new covenant. Now, you only have to read just a little bit of history to imagine the historical consequences of the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 or of the Neronian persecution in Rome in the 60s A.D. after the fire in Rome. Nero is like a lot of modern politicians. He fiddled while Rome was burning. Now, One could imagine, even more than that, the fire that tests the works of every person, every man. 1 Corinthians 3.12 to 15. Salvation's never a question. Because even someone whose works are totally burned up in the fire at the judgment seat of Christ is saved because there's no other foundation that can be laid than has already been laid, which is Jesus Christ. But there's a little bit something fearful in the sense of awesome reverence for God about our works and actions going up in a puff of smoke. Now, the fact that one is considered worthy or deserving a much more severe punishment for spurning the word of God than they were for spurning Moses' covenant or the words of Moses, how much more are those considered worthy to be punished to have spurned God's son? Even more than those who've rejected the word of angels and the law of Moses. But God doesn't wish to inflict punishment. Nevertheless, God's people ought to be very aware 
that we are accountable for what we do with our liberated will. Now, I have to admit that for me, a great conflict is involved in reading passages like these. The reason for that is I know that God is love. I know that his mercy endures forever. 26 times in Psalm 136 gets the point across. I know that his wrath lasts only for a moment. Proverbs 30, verse 5. But I also know that there is a thing called the wrath of God. I know that this wrath is not separated from God's love, however, that it's even, in fact, an expression of God's love, and that it does not last forever as the expression of his love. Those who say, for example, that hell is God's eternal judgment are saying at the same time that his mercy is but for a moment and that his wrath lasts forever, which reverses the whole thing of of the psalmist in Psalm 30, verses 5 and 6. God's wrath is only for a moment, and his mercy endures forever. But on the other hand, I can't just blow off passages like these in Hebrews where there's a real warning issued and not just a hypothetical one. It's ironic to me that those who believe in an eternal hell, as I just said, and who thus believe that God's wrath is not momentary but forever, and that his mercy, therefore, must be momentary and not forever, these are the very ones who are being warned here. I know we all are, but especially those are being warned here who are insulting the spirit of grace. They are insulting the spirit of grace, rejecting the blood of the covenant, trampling the son of God underfoot, as well as neglecting so great salvation that was wrought in and by his once and for all sacrifice for sins. Their very insistence on the dogma of an eternal hell for the majority of humankind shows that they are in fact neglecting the doctrine of so great a salvation that God wrought in Christ for all. You know, if I had a pastor who was teaching this stuff right now, you know what I'd be doing? Taking notes. You know what I would do? Listen to it again and again. I would take the notes that he wrote and I would read them. I would study them. I would follow the scripture references, but that's just me. Sorry, that's just me. That's all. That's the way I was when I had pastors that I sat under. And I don't know how many crates of handwritten notebooks I have discarded in my past. Just being a pastor there for a minute, sorry. But it's a sobering thing that God's people died without mercy in the wilderness under Moses. The vast majority of the Exodus generation died for spurning Moses' law and the words spoken by angels at Sinai. 
God's people are perishing today. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians who are dying and who are enduring severe suffering in our time, and there many are, millions are, millions have been persecuted. It does not mean that those Christians are under the disfavor of God. But we cannot deny altogether, on the other hand, that some suffering endured by God's people is a result of the spurning of his grace. In fact, we're not told to pray for those to have life who have so-called, and this is a, a misused doctrine, but to the, for those who have committed a sin unto death, I don't ask that you should pray that they would receive life. The reason for this is not because God's killing them, but because when persons reject Christ, when believers drift to the point where they actually divorce themselves from the reality of Jesus Christ, and they've made a final decision about it, when they're on their deathbed, it doesn't make much sense for God to ask God to give them life and restore them back to that existence again. Because God is intending to bring them into his eternal joy and presence and bring them out of their misery, which is caused by their rejection of his son. And so this so-called sin unto death is something we do not pray for, as John says in 1 John 5, 16 and 17, because God wills to receive them into his immediate presence where there is eternal life. So why should we ask for God to restore them to life? Now, that's only for a certain occasion. God wants to end the misery of those who have made a stand against their faith in Christ and totally rejected it. That doesn't mean we don't pray for people to be restored in faith and restored to their faith. It just means that sometimes people make that decision with finality and on their way out, it's not good to necessarily pray that God restores them back to physical life because he's receiving them to himself in the joy of eternal life to end their misery. So in some cases, we're praying for God to restore someone back to life their previous life they've had in order to extend their misery. When God's intention is to bring them to himself and bring them to everlasting joy. Again, don't interpret this as me saying you don't pray for someone who's ill. You don't pray for someone who's deathly ill. You don't pray for our loved ones. We don't pray for people in America who are dying or across the world who are dying. That's not my, what I mean and that's not what I intend. I'm speaking of a specialized case in 1 John 5, 8, 16. So, but I'm not going to steer around passages like Hebrews 6, 4 through 8 and the one we just read, Hebrews 10, 28 to 31. I cannot deny verses in the Bible that say we reap what we sow in Galatians 6, 7 and that God isn't fooled or mocked. And that those who sow to the wind reap the whirlwind in Hosea 8, 7. I'm not going to deny those or explain them away. I cannot deny altogether that some of the things that are happening to our nation and in our nation and to the world 
are because of the momentary wrath of God, part of his love. But the momentary wrath of God on the rejectors of his word and the gospel about his son and his people who are rejecting the pull of the spirit onto greater realities and greater truths and greater insights. Now, I cannot deny that though human actions and human failures released somewhat of a plague on this planet. I said human actions and human failures released a plague on this planet. And I will not deny that God, the God of all grace, is using this moment to awaken his people and to awaken all people to the gospel of the glory of the Christ, which is destined to fill the whole earth as it shines already throughout all of heaven. This wrath will pass over. And it will be past. In the past. But what remains is the gospel which proclaims Jesus Christ in his universally saving significance. Now, and when it will have passed over, I wonder how many of people that call themselves Christians will have really considered him or how many people who never considered themselves Christians will have considered him. For even God's momentary wrath, momentary wrath, part of his love, is just an expression of his passionate love in order to do all of us good in the latter end of a thing like this as we come out the other side. Jeremiah 29, 11 comes to mind. His plan is not to destroy, but to save. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, to judge the world, but to save the world through him. John 3.17. Nevertheless, the stentorian loud call remains in the air. Awake you sleepers, and rise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. That's Ephesians 5.14 if you're interested, and it comes from Isaiah 60 and verse 1, if you're interested. This cry goes out and remains over the whole earth. I hope it will be heeded by millions so that a worse thing on all the nations will be averted. Avoided, fouled off, as you, as it, or as it were, to use a baseball analogy. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. I'm not saying that the present plague is the wrath of God unleashed on the world, or that it's God's wrath on the church either. In fact, it may have something to do with what Psalm 76.10 calls 
the wrath of man, which in the end praises God or serves God's ultimate gracious purpose. Psalm 76.10. On the other hand, the word of God is alive and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. On the other hand, I will not say that the wrath of God is not involved at this moment of world and national crisis. Psalm 56, 7 says that God brings down the nations in wrath. Nevertheless, we can expect that he will not unleash all his wrath and that with his compassion, he will not utterly destroy as Psalm 78, 38 says. But in Psalm 79, 6, Asaph who was a Levite and an inspired seer and a psalm composer, prayed this, pour out your wrath on the nations that don't acknowledge you, on the kingdoms that don't call on your name. Now, I could pray that prayer if I understood God's wrath to be the aspect of his love that wakes up those who do not believe because the God of this age has blinded their minds. I could pray that prayer along with him. I would never pray that God would judge and damn the nations. He hasn't done that. But it's not inconceivable that God's wrath is being poured out on the nations in one sense, but it is also within biblical reason that God's love is acting to make to wake up many unbelievers as they're called and many within the nations and maybe even some leaders of the nations to the importance of God's name which is Jesus God's son at the same time God may be using this moment of wrath to chasten his children who were formerly in danger of drifting and who were on their way to a total divorce from the reality that is Jesus Christ. In this life, that is. Now, he chastens. He chastens us. There isn't a son or a daughter whom God receives whom he doesn't chasten or train by gentle disciplines. He chastens us not for his pleasure, though, like earthly fathers do, or to get us out of his hair, but for our good. And there's not a child of his who escapes this loving chastening that God designs to be what Hebrews 12:11 calls productive of the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who are trained by it. Hebrews 12:11. Our vice president, Vice President Pence is right when he refers almost daily to the healing of our land. And I think we have the right to and the prerogative to expect that. But it is not we the people, but God who heals the land. As God's people who bear his name 
humble themselves, pray, seek his face, and turn from their evil ways. Second Chronicles 7.14 This is a prayer I recall that Pastor Craig Brown prayed on the eve of our being separated for a while. He was very prescient in that prayer. We turn from our evil ways only when we see Jesus and when in his face we see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 6. This is what Stephen saw at the end of his speech and at the end of his brief life on this earth. Moreover, a young man named Saul was present at that moment to witness it. That young man named Saul became an old man named Paul. Now, I've left my purpose in Hebrews, a teaching purpose, an encouraging purpose, just for a moment today to speak a special word into our own time. God sent his word to heal them. Says Psalm 107.20. He sent his son, the eternal word, to save the world. To redeem the nations. To save all of humankind and all of creation. Earth, earth, earth. Hear the word of the Lord. Says Jeremiah 22.29. He sends the word of our salvation, as Ephesians 1.13 calls it, into all the earth so that all the ends of the earth will look to him and begin to experience the so great salvation, to begin to experience it even now in this evil age, that so great salvation that was wrought by God in Jesus Christ as he tasted the wages of every person's sin. I pray that we will not miss the point of this present period of trial, which is testing the whole world. We are not kept in our homes primarily because of a government mandate or because of the urgent advice of health and medical professionals, but so that we can turn our eyes upon Jesus. And look full in his wonderful face. So that we can turn to God. And to the word he has spoken in his son. And be attentive to him who speaks from heaven. With a renewed sense of priority. Assigning the highest value. To the love of God our father to the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and to the communion and fellowship that we have in the Holy Spirit who pours the love of God out into our hearts. Because that fellowship is not just a tenuous camaraderie among people, 
but a fellowship of human and divine persons. We have been told by God the Spirit to enter our homes and close our doors for a little while. Isaiah 26, 20. In order to recover a vertical orientation before horizontal attachments swallow us up and we forget God our Savior and the so great salvation that he has wrought in Christ and that he makes real by his spirit and through his word. God's wisdom in commanding this policy for a little while will be revealed in eternity. The wisdom of him doing this right now will be revealed in eternity. And for that, Father, we thank you. In Jesus' name, amen.